Before I start this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast, just the usual note of thanks to Sora Shimazaki of Pexels, who took the photograph which adorns the cover art. Let's get on with it. Hello and welcome to episode 93 of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. I'm Chris Cutbride. It's yet another busy week for financial crime, a range of stories across the whole of financial crime with sanctions, fraud and money laundering all vying for top spot. Also this week, Transparency International has published its annual Corruption Perceptions Index. We'll also review this week's cyber attack news with a huge story out of the US. Lots to get into, so let's crack on. As usual, I flagged the main stories in the podcast description. Now, we'll start, as we always do start, with sanctions. In the United Kingdom, where the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation, or OFSI, has announced eight additions and one amendment to the consolidated list. The additions are specifically to the Iran financial sanctions regime, consisting of seven individuals, and the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps Quds Force, Unit 840, and one amendment to the Yemen financial sanctions regime. Link to the Iran notice and the consolidated list can be found in the podcast description. In other news from OFSI this week, the government has updated its Russia sanctions guidance and the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office updated the UK sanctions list with the addition of Vladimir Alexandrovich. Dmitriev, who is, I understand, an executive with Gazprom Bank. He has been sanctioned by the US authorities for almost 18 months. There's also been an amendment to an entry on the Iran financial sanctions regime and four additions to the Myanmar financial sanctions regime, two of which are military and the other two are enterprises. Finally, from OFSI and in coordination with G7 partners, a compliance and enforcement alert on the oil price cap has been issued concerning the key means of evasion employed, recommendations for identifying such methods, as well as how to mitigate their risks and negative impacts. The alert also provides information on how to report suspected breaches. Links to the updated Russia sanctions guidance, the notice relating to the designation of Dmitriev, the consolidated list, the Myanmar notice, and the oil price cap compliance and enforcement notice can be found in the podcast description. Now, last week we looked at a range of consolidated, sorry, coordinated action in relation to sanctions. Well, again, this week there has been some coordination, only this time between the US and the UK authorities, where sanctions have been imposed on those who seek to pursue Iranian dissidents. As the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, press release, which is linked in the podcast description, provides, the US Department of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, and the United Kingdom are taking joint action against a network of individuals that targeted Iranian dissidents and opposition activists activists for assassination at the direction of the Iranian regime. The network is led by Iranian narcotics trafficker Naji Ibrahim Sharifi Zindashti, or Zindashti for short, and operates at the behest of the Iranian Ministry of Intelligence and Security. Zindashti's network has carried out numerous acts of transnational repression, including assassinations and kidnappings, 
across multiple jurisdictions in an attempt to silence the Iranian regime's perceived critics. The network has also plotted operations in the United States. OFAC has also this week imposed sanctions on a range of individuals, organisations and entities. First, ISIS cyber facilitators and trainers. The cybersecurity trainers are affiliated with the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or ISIS as it's known, and provide ISIS leadership and its supporters with cybersecurity training, enabling their use of virtual currency and providing support to the group's recruitment. OFAC has also designated an ISIS financial facilitator concerned in the transfer of funds to ISIS-affiliated individuals in Syria. Secondly, and on the third anniversary of the military coup in Burma, OFAC has designated two individuals and four, uh, sorry, two entities and four individuals allied to the military regime. Links to the press release for all these stories can be found in the podcast description. And finally, on sanctions this week, the European Union has announced the extension of the Russian sanctions regime for a further six months until the 31st of July 2024. A link to the Council of the European Union press release is in the podcast description. Now, for all news. Last week, I think, was the first week without a COVID-19 fraud story for some considerable time. Well, this week, normal service is resumed with news from the US that a woman has been sentenced to 21 months imprisonment for submitting a, quotes, materially false application to the Small Business Administration, the SBA, to obtain an Economic Injury Disaster Loan, or EIDL loan. The link to the DOJ press release is in the podcast description. Now, this is an interesting story. The New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, has announced action has been started against Citibank for, quotes, failing to protect and refusing to reimburse victims of fraud. Now, as the filed court documents reveal, quote, banks should deploy safety measures, security protocols, and other guardrails to prevent scammers from infiltrating online and mobile banking and engaging in unauthorized activity to steal consumer funds. However, Citibank has not deployed sufficiently robust data security measures to protect consumer financial accounts, respond appropriately to red flags, or limit theft by scam. Instead, City is overpromised and underdelivered on security, reacted ineffectively to fraud alerts, misled consumers, and summarily denied their claims. We'll follow this one to see where it goes, though I would say that this is one area where the US certainly is more aggressive in consumer protection than might certainly be said on this side of the Atlantic. A link to the press release and the filed court documents can be found in the podcast description. Staying in the US and in actions arising from the same set of facts, both the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Department of Justice have announced charges and guilty pleas in relation to an alleged $1.89 billion cryptocurrency, billion dollars that is, cryptocurrency fraud scheme. As the DOJ press release provides Sam Lee, 35, an Australian citizen residing in Dubai, the UAE, has char- was charged for allegedly co-founding Hyperfund, also known as Hypertech, Hypercapital, Hyperverse and Hypernation. Rodney Burton and Brenda Chunga were promoters of Hyperfund, 
The defendants are charged with defrauding investors to the tune of $1.89 billion. As alleged, the defendants falsely represented that investors would receive substantial returns paid from cryptocurrency mining operations, which did not, in fact, exist. Chunga pleaded guilty to one count of conspiracy to commit securities fraud and wire fraud and will be sentenced on 1st May. The SEC complaint alleges that quotes from June 2020 through early 2022, Li and Chunga promoted hyperfund membership packages which they claimed guaranteed investors high returns including from hyperfund's supposed crypto asset mining operations and associations with a Fortune 500 company. As the complaint alleges, however, Li and Chunga knew or were, rec were reckless in not knowing that Hyperfund was a pyramid scheme and had no real source of revenue other than funds received from investors. In 2022, the Hyperfund scheme collapsed and investors were no longer able to make withdrawals. Chunga agreed to settle the charges, to be permanently enjoined from future violations of the charged provisions and certain other activity, and to pay disgorgement and civil penalties in amounts to be determined by the court at a future date. The settlement is subject to court approval. The link to both press releases can be found in the podcast description. Now in another crypto story, only this one is allied to old-school offences of the proceeds of dealing in illegal drugs, and an investigation led by the US Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, which, with the support of the National Crime Agency in the UK, the Crown Prosecution Service in the UK, and the UK Central Authority, has resulted in the seizure of around $150 million in cryptocurrency and cash. Now, that is the largest seizure, largest such seizure, in the DEA's history. Neither of these stories is a great advert of cryptocurrency, and you can read the press release from the National Crime Agency on this story in the podcast description. Now, we move to look at this week's money laundering news. The money laundering news this week starts in Canada, where there are a number of credible reports that the Financial Transactions and Reports Analysis Centre of Canada, or FinTrack as it's known, is understood to be ready to impose a penalty on TD Bank for failures in its anti-money laundering procedures following an assessment completed towards the end of 2023. The fine, understood to be around 10 million Canadian dollars, if imposed, will be the largest fine FinTrack has ever imposed for AML failings. At the moment, there's nothing on the FinTrack website, but I'll be certain to report more of the detail when it's revealed. Staying in North America, only this time it's the US, where the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network, or FinCEN, has, quote, issued a finding and notice of proposed rulemaking, that's NPRM, that identifies Al-Huda Bank, an Iraqi bank that serves as a conduit for terrorist financing as a foreign financial institution of primary money laundering concern. Along with its finding, FinCEN proposed imposing a special measure that would sever the bank from the US financial system by prohibiting domestic financial institutions and agencies from opening or maintaining a correspondent account for or on behalf of Al-Huda Bank. In addition, OFAC has imposed sanctions on its owner. Links to the FinCEN press release and the NPRM, that's the Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, together with the OFAC press release can be found in the podcast description. 
Now to the UK and an appeal in the Court of Appeal of England and Wales against a conviction under sections 328 and 329 of the Proceeds of Crime Act 2002. For reference, section 328 is the offence of becoming concerned in an arrangement which the defendant knows or suspects facilitates by whatever means the acquisition, retention, use or control of criminal property by or on behalf of another person. Section 329 is the offence of acquiring criminal property. The facts of the case arose around the online sale of prescription-only medicines and counterfeit medicines. The objection was to the direction given by the judge to the jury at the trial. It was, quotes, the prosecution must satisfy you so that you are sure that the defendant knew or at least suspected that the monies represented in whole or in part, whether directly or indirectly, the proceeds of crime. Though it's open to you to accept the defence's contention that realistically this issue turns on whether or not the Crown has proved so that you are sure that the defendant did not really believe that the relative online sales involved no more than vitamins, that issue is one of fact for you to resolve and decide. There is no requirement on the prosecution to prove that the defendant knew or suspected that the relative online sales involved prescription-only medicines and or counterfeit medicines. What you have to be sure of is that during the indictment period, the defendant knew or at least suspected that these monies represented, in whole or in part, whether directly or indirectly, the proceeds of crime. Now the defence, while accepting that the direction was correct, the trial context had emphasised the sale of prescription-only medicines and counterfeit medicines, the effect of which was to water down mens rea, which is the mental element necessary for proof of a crime. Consequently, the conviction was unsafe because the direction was so late in the trial and that the defence would have taken a different approach to the case. However, the court disagreed, and at paragraphs 41 and 42 of its judgment, it rejected the argument and said that room for a different approach to the defence was very limited and that therefore the conviction was safe. The final stories respecting money laundering this week share the common theme of Companies House. First, the National Crime Agency in the UK has published issue 24 of SARS in Action. It has the usual range of content, but there is an interesting article which looks at the new powers which Companies House is to receive in respect of enforcement and data sharing. These powers come courtesy of the Economic Crime and Corporate Transparency Act 2023. Now, in a neat segue to this article in SARS in Action, I'd like to draw attention to a blog post on the excellent Oxford Business Law blog written by Elspeth Berry, who's an Associate Professor at, uh, of Law at Nottingham Trent University in the Midlands, uh, in the UK. It concerns the issue of people with significant control, or PSC, as it's known, and why it remains a challenge to identify the ultimate beneficial owner of corporations, the issue has been highlighted recently in the United Kingdom by the ownership of PPE MedPro, which was set up during the pandemic to supply PPE, that's personal protective equipment, to the National Health Service. Berry identifies the shortcomings with the current regime and concludes that, quotes, what is needed as a minimum is for the government to resource Companies House to verify PSC data, that's persons with significant control. So to verify PSC data, close loopholes by prohibiting declarations that there is no PSC, 
and reducing or removing the ownership and voting thresholds and check up on corporate PSCs since they can obscure the real controllers. Link to that blog post is in the podcast description, as well as, of course, the link to SARS in action. Now, bribery and corruption news. And it's been a good week for bribery and corruption news. We'll start in China, where the former vice president of the China Development Bank, He Jingjiang, has been sentenced to 20 years imprisonment for taking bribes, the illegal issuance of financial instruments, illegally making loans, and the concealment of overseas deposits. The crimes, which took place over a 15-year period from 2006 until 2021, were uncovered following an investigation by Chinese authorities. He was also issued with a fine of 5.1 million yuan, that's about 720,000 US dollars. In other bribery and corruption news this week, first, the BBC reports that Ukrainian investigators have uncovered significant corruption in the military in military procurement worth around 1.5 billion hervinias, which is the currency of Ukraine. Now that is approximately 40 million US dollars. Individuals at the Ministry of Defence and at the arms company concerned are being investigated. Secondly, the Committee on Civil Liberties of the European Parliament has endorsed stronger rules concerning corruption across all levels within the European Union. Quite interesting this, of course, the European Parliament has been hit with a bit of a scandal recently relating to bribery, which we have reported in previous episodes of the Financial Crime Weekly podcast. Anyway, the press release relating to this provides... MEPs amended the draft anti-corruption provisions to cover more persons of interest, including quote, any person entrusted with tasks of public interest or in charge of a public service. MEPs want top EU decision makers, that is MEPs, commissioners and the President of the Council, to be added to the category of high-level officials and to be subject to more severe rules. Provisions were also included for military officials, senior executives of state-owned corporations and managing officials of political parties represented in a parliament. MEPs also made the proposals for stricter penalties, particularly in relation to an offender's ability to hold public office and exclusions from access to public funding. The member states would have to come up with anti-corruption strategies, while EU institutions and agencies would also take appropriate preventative measures. Those might include setting up specialised independent bodies in line with standards set out under EU law. MEPs also demanded that the Commission establish the role of EU anti-corruption coordinator and produce an annual EU anti-corruption report. Link to the press release from the European Parliament is in the podcast description. Now, the final bit of bribery and corruption news this week relates to the publication by Transparency International, or TI, of its annual Corruption Perception Index. Now, I've looked at the UK because it's quite interesting from our perspective, since the UK has fallen to its lowest ever level, that is 20th out of 181, since the index was recalibrated in 2012. It sits on 71 points, which represents a fall of six points over the last five years. There could be many reasons for the perception of corruption which currently surrounds the UK, but Transparency International considers the awarding of PPE contracts at the height of the pandemic, which has been a huge issue at the moment. 
and in some cases unraveled spectacularly as one of the reasons why. It also cites the resignations of UK government anti-corruption individuals, the anti-corruption leaders gone, and the independent adviser on ministerial interests has also resigned. Corruption perceptions do not appear to be high on the political agenda, so one would question whether anything is planned in terms of improving the image of the United Kingdom. But it could be suggested that something should be done, especially if this perception starts to harm the reputation of the UK as a place to do business. In terms of the top five, they fall in the following order. Denmark, which is squeaky clean, Finland, New Zealand, Norway, and fifth place falls to Singapore. The bottom three propping up the table are, you may be unsurprised to learn, Syria, Venezuela, and Somalia is rooted to the bottom. Away from the UK, broadly, the response to public se sector corruption is being hindered by a decline in justice and the rule of law since 2016, and that is something which is noted generally. This theme is more prevalent than you might think. Indeed, as bad as things might look for the UK, 23 countries have their worst CPI ranking in this latest survey since Transparency International began to produce it over 30 years ago. To complete the survey, Transparency International uses 13 data sources across a range of pan-national organisations, including the World Bank, the World Economic Forum and others, but also assesses private risk and draws on information from consulting firms. TI's press release, links to the report and associated data sets can be found in the podcast description. Now we end this week's Financial Crime Weekly podcast with a look at the cyber attack news and we start with yet another story of tit-for-tat activity between Russia and Ukraine. I've reported variously that when one side attacks the other, efforts then seem to start for retaliatory attacks in first the identification of a target before the full-scale attack is launched. Well, this week, Ukraine has announced it's behind a cyber attack on the IT infrastructure of IPL Consulting, which provides information systems to Russian industry, including weather data to the defence sector. The attack was extensive, taking out the company's 60-terabyte IT infrastructure, several servers and databases. I fully expect some further form of retaliation from Russia in coming days. Now, a story which is a throwback to last week where we mentioned the coordinated action by Australia, the US and UK against the Russian hacker behind the Medibank cyber attack. Well, this week, the European Union has issued comforting words of solidarity in a press release from the Council. If you want to read its unremarkable content, then you can, be you can find it in the podcast description. In the UK, the Financial Times indicates that financial data belonging to 53 million individuals was compromised in 2023 with the Information Commissioner's Office identifying an almost threefold increase in successful cyber attacks against financial services providers between 2021-22 and 2022-23. I've linked that article in the podcast description because it isn't behind a paywall. And finally, on cyber attacks this week, big news from the US, which is not only warning of threats to critical infrastructure from Chinese state-sponsored cyber attacks, but that it has also foiled a Vault Typhoon cyber attack. As the Department of Justice press release provides, quotes, A December 2023 court-authorized operation has disrupted a botnet of hundreds of US-based small office-slash-home office, or SOHO, 
routers hijacked by People's Republic of China, PRC-state-sponsored hackers. The hackers, known to the private sector as Vault Typhoon, used privately owned Soho routers infected with the KV botnet malware to conceal the PRC origin of further hacking activities directed against US and other foreign victims. These further hacking activities included a campaign targeting critical infrastructure organizations in the United States and elsewhere that was subject of a May 2023 FBI, National Security Agency, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency and Foreign Partner Advisory. The same activity has been the subject of private sector partner advisories in May and December 2023, as well as additional Secure by Design Alert, which was released by CISA. Now, the vast majority of routers that comprised the KV botnet were Cisco and Netgear routers, which were vulnerable because they'd reached end-of-life status. That is, they no longer supported, they were no longer supported through their manufacturer's security patches or other software updates. The court-authorized operation deleted the KV botnet malware from the routers and took additional steps to sever their connection to the botnet, such as blocking communications with other devices used to control the botnet. Afraid this is the way of the world, this is where it's going. Anyway, the link to the DOJ press release is in the podcast description. And that is it for this week's episode of the Financial Crime Weekly Podcast. If you want to do so, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and you'll hear from me again, all being well, next week with the usual roundup of all things financial crime. Have a great week, everyone.